This is an interview with the creator of Climate Conversations, a podcast on the Climactic Collective, which is more a news source, a collection of news stories, and an act of audio journalism than a traditional podcast. You're about to hear a clip from Climate Conversations, a recent interview episode, and this clip is just going to be the first couple minutes from that episode, which gives you a good grounding in what Climate Conversations is and what it sounds like, followed by a conversation with the creator, Robert McLean. We are challenging the constitutional validity of this tax. Um, the framework for this tax is that electric vehicle drivers don't pay the federal fuel excise, so therefore they're claiming we don't pay for roads. And I object to that because the federal fuel excise is a federal tax which goes to the Commonwealth Government, not the State Government. The State Government has no authority over that tax. That's Melbourne's Cap Davies, who along with Chris Vandenstock is taking the Victorian State Government to the Australian High Court, arguing that the new tax the State Government has placed on electric vehicles is unconstitutional. Welcome to this latest episode of Climate Conversations. I'm your host, Robert McLean. And I'm coming to you from the unceded land of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people on which I live in Shepparton, in Northern Victoria, Australia. I've been involved with the practical side of the climate conversation since the early 2000s. That's attending lectures and reading whatever I could find. And although the public interest has broadened as the years have passed, it became apparent to me a few years ago that much more needed to be said. And it was important, terribly important, that we were making much more noise. Unsure of what to do to reach more people, I decided to try my hand, or should I say more correctly, my voice, at podcasting. And what you're listening to now is the result of those efforts. There appeared to be a great silence about the climate crisis. And this podcast is an effort by me to increase the volume of my voice, and so help end that silence. Fortunately, it was not as silent as I had thought, as many other podcasts were beavering away and were attempting to alert the world to the climate crisis. And several months ago, I was found, so to speak, by Mark Spencer from the Trans-Tasman Climactic Collective. Music for this podcast comes courtesy of Music for a Warming World, a Melbourne-based group and you'll find a link to that group in the episode notes. I trust you'll enjoy this episode, and if you do, please feel free to share it with your friends. Hello and welcome. This is an interview for Right Here, Right Now, the working title of a newsletter and podcast about the intersection of podcasting and climate change. We're running a series of interviews about climate-engaged podcasters. Some of the podcasters highlighted will have overtly and obviously climate-engaged shows, and others may surprise you in the ways they're engaging with climate. When I started making a podcast specifically about local, relatable, individual-scale climate stories in 2018, I could find nothing similar. Now, though, there's a plethora of climate podcasts out there. So I'm turning my time and attention to exploring, discussing, and highlighting the world of climate podcasting. 
because in the face of the climate crisis, we don't need everyone inventing their own wheels for climate engagement. Sometimes we also need to get the existing ones spinning faster. So exploring what works, what doesn't, and what advice the creators of existing shows would maybe give themselves early on. This is an interview with Robert McLean, a newspaperman turned podcaster from Shepparton, a town in northern Victoria that straddles the banks of the Murray-Darling River, the lifeblood of eastern Australia. That river played a major role in Robert's story of how he became aware, concerned, and ultimately engaged with climate change. You can read an article that Robert wrote for the local newspaper linked in the show notes. This interview will be edited for length and clarity for the newsletter and also be made available on the Right Here, Right Now podcast feed, along with excerpts from Robert's podcast. Now, let's get started. Robert, hello, welcome. Thank you very much for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me, Mark. I appreciate that. It's a great, great privilege. Thanks. Let's start by talking about, you know, rather than your origin story and everything, let's talk about the, the podcast you're making that exists now, and that is Climate Conversations. How do you describe that show to a, like a potential listener? Somebody says, oh, I hear you got a podcast. What's that about? Yeah, that's rather challenging, but I believe that if we have the information, we can solve the problem. And I think that through Climate Conversations, my aim is to provide people with the information and I do that in a whole variety of ways, sometimes with personal rants, but largely by interviewing people and trying to find people who've got something interesting to say about the climate crisis. And I think that if people have the information at their fingertips or in their minds, they're then then in a position to make the, the right decisions about how they should progress mm-hmm. the whole issue. So do you kind of see it as like a steady stream of climate information? As you say, it sort of takes on a variety of forms. But is it kind of like a steady stream of climate-engaged news? It's a, it's an information source, well, kind of like an audio wire service. It, well, that's why I see it. Just of late, I've been trying to produce a daily sort of roundup of climate news I can find around the place. And again, not all of it I entirely agree with completely, but I think it's just all information and people should be able to distill that from that and make some decision about how they will progress the whole issue. So not always are you editorialising or kind of analyzing or giving your opinion on the news you're just kind of presenting the news you can find yeah that you think people need to hear i have this view that we've all got minds of our own and we've all got slightly different views and opinions about all sorts of things and i think that if you've got a whole plethora of information there you can decide what's important to you and how you're going to apply it and how you're going to make it work so so in the proverbial you know you can bring a horse to water but you can't make it drink you're you're trying to be the water source <laughs> I'm trying, well sort of yeah if you want to call it that, yeah, that's what I'm trying to do. So. Excellent. You've been involved in newspapers and journalism for a long time. And I was reading up on you before this, and I understand you got involved at the local newspaper in year 11, which is, you know, like late, sort of like sophomore uh, high school for the Americans. Uh, you know, you're at 16, 17, something like that. You can you can correct me if you remember. Um, <laughs> I was 16. 16. Mm-hmm. And how do you feel about sort of podcasting now at this stage compared to journalism and that's journalism as you've seen it develop over decades like is there any compare and contrast you can give between Um, podcasting and journalism the word the written word is really powerful and i think the spoken word is also equally powerful it's just some people are really good at delivering either one or the other um I'm not sure that I'm very good at either. Um, I sort of enjoy them both. Uh, yeah, I enjoy them both. And I think what's changed a lot is that this modern world doesn't allow... Well, the way people live, they don't have much time to actually read long articles, whereas they might have mm-hmm. 
they might have half an hour to listen to a podcast. And so if you could produce a podcast that people can listen to while they're walking or while they're exercising or while they're driving their car or whatever they're doing, doing the housework, people can listen to them all over. So you actually get inside the head, which is really important. Like if they're listening mm-hmm. to a podcast, not listening to anything else, they're listening to you. And so I think that's really important that you're inside the head, you're giving your views and opinions. And so I think the whole thing about news has changed. News is quite different than what it used to be. What I used to work on a newspaper, and initially when I started on, say, the Shepparton News in Shepparton, it was the only newspaper in town. Um, it was the prime source of information. But now it, that's no longer the case. Like, people can get their mm-hmm. information from everywhere. Like, I've got a friend who says he takes all his information from Facebook. So, for goodness sake, like, um, I'm not sure that's the place where you get your news, but he thinks it is, so... So how have you found your own sort of yeah news consumption changing over years? You know, like when there was the big rage about blogs about 15, 20 years ago was kind of this this heyday. And a lot of the, the editors in chief of new media publications, things like Vox, started with being bloggers in their you know late teens through their 20s, kind of going like really niche on a topic. And yeah, finding their audience wasn't in their local community. It was global of people who are interested in that niche. Did that kind of intersect with your career at all? The, the, you know, going from local journalism, did it go into kind of like that niche publication online sort of Um, sea change? Well, my career in newspapers ended 23 years ago or 24 years ago when I had a bad road accident. So for the last 23 Mm -hmm. or 24 years, well, for a long time, I did nothing pretty much. Then I figured I'd I'd start a blog because I figured that was one way to make contact with... My my initial thought was I'll have a newsletter and I'll deliver it to people. Mm -hmm. Then suddenly things changed and changed and changed and social media become possible, blogs become possible. So I thought, oh, I'll write a blog. So I had a blog for a while, which I've still got, but I haven't, haven't attended to it for ages. Then I heard about podcasts and I thought, gee, that's an interesting idea. And I thought I'll try that. A few years ago, I set up the podcast and it's been really good because I'm able to get all sorts of people from all over the place to talk about all sorts of odd things, people who I could never reach before, never reach. Um, Plus, well, as I said before, I had a bad road accident, so that's limited me in all sorts of ways. And taking notes is one of those things I'm not very good at anymore or never was very good at, but I'm even worse now. So doing a podcast allows me to record people. So I just record mm-hmm. what they say, I then then sit down and spend a long time editing it. And that that's the perfect solution for me. The only problem I have with all that, of course, is that as a result of my road accident, I end up with a thing called aphasia, which limits your um, understanding and your ability to talk and recall matters and talk quickly and respond to things and all that sort of stuff. So that's been quite a challenge. So when I interview somebody, I need to write out all my questions so I have the whole question sheet in front of me, mm-hmm. um, and that allows me to because I I can't just dream things up on the spot. I'm getting better at responding to people, and actually it's been very good training because you're actually practically doing something about it. So it becomes much easier as time's passing, but it's still hard work. So anyway, and I think mm. I think podcasting has a has a, a great. In fact, what I read when I first started podcasting, there was some a massive number of blogs in the world. And comparatively, there was few podcasts, although I think that number's probably increased dramatically in the last couple of years. Comparatively, when I first started, there was few podcasts compared to blogs. And so I thought, there's an opportunity. I'll have a crack at that. So, 
And I, I felt like I needed to make my voice louder. I needed to do what I can to get the message out about the climate crisis. Um, so that's what I'm doing. I'm trying to anyway. Mm. Thank you for, for going there sort of straight away on the, the accident. I understand that was, that was 1997 and the road to recovery was quite long. And it's so great to hear where you're at now that you're seeing not only you're able to overcome those limitations of what aphasia means for your ability to recall and have you know conversations like this, but just to, to actually notice improvement and have a record of the improvement mm-hmm. over the years you've done the podcast is wonderful. Is there any advice you'd give to other people on who may not understand that it's possible, you know, to have aphasia and run a podcast? Can you offer a little bit of insight into your your method of how you actually make that work? First, it takes a long time. Beyond that, you have to be prepared. So you have to think seriously about your questions and you actually have to, in my view, I have to write them all down. When I'm doing an interview, like I did an interview yesterday with a lady who's got an electric car so I had to have all the questions written down. And from that, I can sometimes spin off into something else, but I don't go very far from my script, so to speak. So, mm-hmm. uh, But it's just hard work, and you just if you just prepare for it. And the other thing is I noticed that when it comes time to create my I, – I, I've got all my, my intros and outros already pre-created, so I just load them on the front and back automatically. I'm not sure they're as good as they should be, but they're okay. Um, and then – if I have to put little bits in the middle, like bits and pieces here and there, and I have to record them sort of live, so to speak, if you want to call it that, sometimes it takes me about 10 goes to get them right, or what I think's right. So uh, the beauty of this is that I've got control of it all. Like mm-hmm. I can try it. If it doesn't work, I can delete it and try it again, delete it and try it again until I get it when I think, when I think it's not too bad or when it's at least acceptable. So Nothing's live to air. There's no deadlines, no. no print publication deadlines, no editor. Um, yeah. But is there some of that stuff, that structure that, that is absent in podcasting that you got used to in the journalism world, the the apparatus, you know, being part of a news team? What's the, that difference in dynamic like? Is there some elements of it that you kind of wish you could have in podcasting? Or is it, for the most part, the freedom of it being your show fully? Is it? better for that i i do like the fact that it's fully my show i often forget that beyond the reader and the person i'm interviewing or dealing with i'm in charge like it's my show i can do what i like i can say what i like i can leave bits in take bits out and it's important to know that it's your show it's you can make it any way you like provided you think about the, the listener Provided you think about the person you're dealing with, the person on the interview, on the interviewee, so it's just a really interesting dynamic. And I think I've read a few things from I read a bit of stuff about podcasting here and there, and people are saying they've got this problem or that problem. I think, well, hang on, you're in charge. You can do what you like. You know, it's 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 only a problem if you think it's a problem. You know, so you can do what you like. Yeah, absolutely. So to turn to audience. This is what people complain about most on the internet. Podcasters, every single podcaster <laughs> wants a bigger audience. Um, Climate Conversations in the last 30 days had a unique audience of 446 people. Now, I can give you that stat because you're a member of the Climactic Collective and I've got access. That's not something I can do. I'll have to ask future you know, guests mm. What are your numbers? And it'll be interesting who's comfortable with saying it, who's not. Um, That's one thing I've wanted to do myself from the start 
And I've tried to do with the collective as well as say, like, look, let's just be transparent and talk about this stuff openly. No, I agree. Um, I agree. But like, Robert, you put in so much work into individual episodes and you, you know, you have international guests on. You stay up till, you know, early mornings or, you know, do odd hours to, to get people uh, to make it really convenient for them. You you put in a lot of sweat and hard work into the show. And sometimes individual episodes feel, you know, like they might have tens of downloads, but in the last 30 days, you've reached indiv- like unique people, over 400 of them. And is that hard to imagine or conceptualize, or how does that make you feel? Um, I, well, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty happy with that. I'm pretty happy with that. I, like, my view is that you just need one person, one person of influence to hear what you've got to say or to hear what your guests got to say, and they act on that and they do something that, that's worthwhile. Well, you've been successful. So I, I don't care whether it's... 400 people or 4 million people, you know, if there's just one person in that audience that's doing something in response to what they've heard, that's fine. Um, it's, I know it's mm-hmm. a damn lot of work. Sometimes, as you say, you get 20 listeners, but that's hopefully there's one person that 20 will tell somebody else and they'll tell somebody else. And so I don't know. I, how, do you, how do you make a judgment what's right or wrong or what's good or bad? Like, I don't, I don't speak in those terms much anymore, so... You just do yep. what you can do, and if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Like I run things in town here. We have an organisation in Shepparton called Beneath the Wisteria, so-called because that's where we meet. Well, that's where we met before COVID came along. Yeah. Wisteria tree being uh, an Australian native, beautiful yeah. kind of, yeah. think of it like a weeping willow yeah. kind of-ish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like sometimes I've, I've, I have speakers, when we're doing it physically, I have speakers come along who I thought were really impressive people, and I thought we should have 100 people turn up. And you might only get 10 or 15. And I think, well, well, that's who's meant to be there. I've always had the view that whoever's there is meant to be there. Like you, you, mm-hmm. you can't actually corral people and have and carry and drive them to come along. If they're going to be there, they'll be there, you know. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And all you mm-hmm. can do is what you can do and you're just too distressed about it. And... It's interesting how everyone kind of has – everyone's mental framework and kind of their mental reward system we build up around the show. Like what, what are we getting from it in order to, to keep going and put in the time we're making? And that's a really good comparison you've got. You've got that firsthand. Well, here's the return on investment in my time putting on a live event that, you know, it's only available. Well, pre COVID, it was only available to people in the area to come along physically. Mm-hmm. Now, of course it's happening virtually, but like that's a good kind of one-to-one you can make. And, you know, your show is available perpetually. The back catalog's there, over 300 episodes for anyone to come along in the future and find. How does that compare with writing? Because this is a perspective you've got that a lot of other podcasters don't have, and this sort of this legacy in newspapers. Like, how did it feel when you were writing an article? How did you kind of measure your cut through and your success with writing? The thing with writing has changed quite a bit because. When I first was involved with newspapers, there was no internet, no recording session, nothing was recorded electronically at least. And so it went into newspapers, they were filed, and if people wanted to re- research something, they had to come and physically look through the papers. Whereas these days, they can sit down at their computer and a paper from five years ago, they can find it on the computer. The difference between podcasts and things like that is that a podcast is sort of there, you know, it's much easier to find, whereas a newspaper, you have to search through the thing and try and find what you're looking for, whereas a podcast, if people want to go to Climate Conversations, they go to Climate Conversations, 
They just search for through the back issue or the back episodes, and there it is. It's not terribly difficult to find. Um, so, what was I talking about? What was the question? <laughs> oh, totally. That, that that's it. That inherently, the structure of podcasting is is easier for people to find and consume and and go back to later on. But did you feel at all like? When you were writing for the paper and you had a byline on articles and you were, you know, one of the group of people who got to write words that appeared in that paper, is there like a kind of like, like it's a reputational kind of thing. Did it feel like a sense of uh, accomplishment being published in the local paper, I guess, like by virtue of just being there, not not having to measure the outcome and the success and what people said, but just being able to look at that newspaper and say my words are in the paper and there's my name did it feel like that was that was an accomplishment oh most certainly i, I always enjoyed being a reporter i just liked that and the fact that mm-hmm. your name was there and although as, a, as the editor i i did only wrote a weekly column so although i probably wrote other bits and pieces but really had my name on them but it was just really it's all changed though uh, mark and certainly in, since i left the newspapers to to now like when, as I said, my time in newspapers was pre-digital, so when I was involved, the newspaper was probably the most important, well, in my view, the most important sort of document in town. Pretty much everybody, well, not say everybody, but lots of people read it, whereas today it's a whole different ball game. People's eyeballs are attracted, eyeballs and ears are attracted to all sorts of other things. So the newspaper, look, I don't know what's happening at the moment, I... I but I'd suspect its circulation has gone down quite a bit. Things like podcast fragments are largely available free or pretty much free. Certainly mine is and all those you're involved with are. So um, mm-hmm. um, so it's just a whole different ball game these days and I must admit I haven't really thought about that too much. But The ability of anyone to create a podcast means that there's no longer that kind of sense of automatic achievement by having created a show like it's like okay mm. and no, no one says oh you're being published in the local paper let's let's see your work and let's see you know why i should care there was a sort of an automatic cachet or yeah a reputational achievement associated with that where it's like oh you got a podcast so who have you had on yeah, yeah. so what are your numbers you need those those qualifiers to it so yeah. it's definitely uh well, you know. in terms of who you had on, I, I've had a, a few people have been impressive, but um, in terms of numbers, not great. In fact, I've had a couple of people ask me about that. A couple of guests have asked me what the numbers were, and it's sort of almost embarrassing to say that um, it might only be 20 or 30, and I've had a couple of 100 or so, but um, mostly they're 20, 30, 40. Something like that. So, although when you think about that, that's not too bad because you think about how often do you get a room of fifty people or thirty people to hear what you've got to say. Um, yep. Like, when were you last? When did you last have an audience of thirty? But well, you probably had some, but you didn't, wouldn't have it all that much, I wouldn't think. So, mm. so thirty people's not too bad, really. I suppose. I, I, I'd like to have ten million, but <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> The cool thing, I think, and with talking to creators in this space, I th- I'm hoping for a kind of collective credit or like feeling of like, ah, uh, it's so great that, you know, across dozens of climate engaged shows, there is the thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of millions of listeners who are engaged with climate through various shows. 
the fact that there isn't a a headline you know th- there's a couple popular climate shows but the fact there isn't like a a single mm. headline climate show in the world is um hopefully less depressing than that <laughs> might be <laughs> i'm i'm sort of vaguely uncomfortable about the fact that i've given i've called my podcast climate conversations because it it could well alienate people before it even starts like because if someone's not mm. not interested in climate issues, they just won't even go there. Whereas if you mm-hmm. just call something else like I don't know, softwood or something, <laughs> um, they may well go there for some reason. Just think, what's that? I'll go have a look, have a listen. Whereas when it's called climate conversations, it's sort of upfront. This is what it's about. That's what the topic's going mm-hmm. to be about. So um, you can't hide behind some sort of camouflage. You've got to say who you are and what you are and. If that works, it works. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. You know, you can't do much more than that. Yeah. Do you think that's a, a good thing for podcasts to do, to be sort of upfront about what the show's about and make it obvious so people who are looking for it have an easier time finding it if that's the content that they're seeking? I think so. I think so. Like, I see lots of podcasts that have got some really great names. I think the names are terrific, but you've got no idea what they're about. You've got no idea what yep. they're about. Um, I think the names are really terrific and they're they're quite catchy and i guess once you've listened to them you would know what the name actually meant but like i'm talking sort of self-referential yeah i'm talking to some people well hopefully fairly soon and they've got a podcast called endgame which you put me onto those people so endgame could really mean anything couldn't it it could be about sport could be anything Mm -hmm. um pop culture yeah could be anything could be anything um Mine is called Climate Conversation, so you know even before you go there what you're in for. So either you go there or you don't. It's good you're sort of aware of what the potential downsides might be of the name, but also that you know there is a a good reason for being transparent like that mm. and being easy to explain and simple to understand. The hypothetical thought experiment question. Imagine a, a spectrum or a range and you got one thing on one side, another on the other. And on this spectrum, you've got like a maximum climate engagement. So like the show is super obvious that it's climate engaged, pretty much what we've, what we've talked about with climate conversations. It's like you know, all the way over here, every opportunity to talk about climate is taken. Climate's discussed very front and center. And on the other side of the spectrum, you've got maximum audience appeal. Like this is something that's very entertaining and people want to listen to it and at the risk of not even knowing the climate, that there's any issue <laughs> with climate change. Where on that spectrum do you think climate conversation sits right now in its current form? I think it's right on the on the one end of the extreme. Like it, it's obviously about the climate issue and nothing else. Well, I... Uh, Nothing else, nothing else. So I've just written a piece which I've, I'm thinking about recording um, about how how I discovered that the other day listening to this radio thing and I found some information on, on the net about how the poor people are really suffering through this COVID crisis. Now, the climate crisis is identical, how the poor people are going to be the ones who will suffer the most. So I've, I've written a piece that's about, I don't know, 900 words or something. Mm-hmm. which I want to record and put that up as an episode. Um, so it, that's sort of... I can't remember what I was talking so, about. 
<laughs> so e- even an intersectional topic, you see parallels in it oh, with yeah, climate. Yeah, yeah. And you you kind of reframe stories or other things from the news that aren't explicitly climate, and you actively take it into that lens of how is this related to climate yeah. change? Well, every, everything is related to climate change. It, like, it's really difficult to convey that message, but everything that people do and everything that we experience and is in some way related to climate change. Um, like, it, it's it's one of the world... It is a wicked problem. Um, mm-hmm. Like, it's a wicked issue. Like, everything you like to talk about, it's sort of got... It, it finds its way in there somehow, so... Um, yeah. So it, absolutely, it's, it's easy. I I wrote a column for the local newspaper and, and once a fortnight, and I have terrible trouble writing it without diving into the climate issue because everything, from from my perspective, everything is climate related. I I just it's really difficult yeah. to get away from it. Like around this part of the world, water is a big issue, as you said in the intro. Water is a big issue. So like, and people just see that through. A, some people see it through a really narrow prism. They just see it through a water-type issue, nothing else. Mm-hmm. When it's really about climate change. Like, the amount of water we've got or haven't got is really about climate change. And it's really hard. Oh, I don't know. I, I get so exasperated because people just all the time point out to me, like, how much rain we've had. This Look, we've had more rain in the last past year than we've had in the year before. And I think, well, that's true. But that rain's all come in the wrong time and the wrong places and all that sort of stuff. And it all it's done is caused floods and damage and it hasn't really helped at all. So, yep. Um, anyway, I'm getting wound up, mate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, see, uh, uh, it's going to be obvious to the people I talk to that I'm going to talk about climate change and it's going to fire up most guests and it's going to become a, a high passion conversation, <laughs> which is great. You know, and it's it's nice to kind of normalize that this isn't a topic we should be able to talk about sort of passively. There's the moral implications and there's, you know, plenty of reasons to be fired up when talking about this. Mm. Um, so I've got a, a follow up that's going to be very probably easy to answer. Everything that you've just said speaks to this, but it is something I want to kind of ask every guest going forward. So the follow up to where you sit on that spectrum currently with your show the question is, you know, is that where you want to sit or are you potentially thinking about a calibration in future? Like, is there a sweet spot, do you think, that exists between those two poles where is there a way to bring the climate aspects of, say, water issues on the Murray-Darling River that's really personal to people in Shepparton? Is there a way to get people exposed to the climate implications without being all the way over and losing some of that potential audience? Or is that not where you're interested in taking the show, which is totally valid? Mm. No, well, I do. I mean, I am concerned about the fact that um, I'm on one extreme of that, that uh, what you talked about. Um, mm. I'd, I'd like to be in the middle, but I'd, I can't get into the middle until the people come with me. Yeah. Um, until that window shifts. Yeah, yeah. And it, I heard some fellow talking the other day about the Overton window, which mm-hmm. I don't really understand the Overton window, but I, I sort of think I do vaguely. Um, so the Overton window has got to move, I think, so that not only can I move back to the middle, but the whole community will come back to the middle. And I think once they do come back to the middle, we've then got some chance of coping with the climate crisis. Yep. Yeah. I, 
No, I'm, I'm presently at one end of the extreme or one extreme of the whole thing. Um, I'd like to get back closer to the middle. I'll move with the audience. When the audience moves, I'll move. Um, it's really difficult, though, because it's. I look through the news and most of the news is all doom and gloom. It's really difficult to find any news that's, that's good. And the thing that concerns me, and look, I'm, I'm banging on, Mark, but anyway, the net zero by 2050 thing is just, that's a farce. Like, that's just not mm-hmm. going to work. I'll nearly bet, and I've got nothing to bet, but I'll nearly bet that Scott Morrison will come out soon and say, okay, we'll, we'll go for net zero by 2050. Now, he's not going to do anything at all until 2040. Well, he won't be here at 2040. He'd be dead probably. Or so That's why he doesn't care. <laughs> That's right. But we can't wait till... T- like, if we're going to say t- net zero by 2050, we've got to say net something by 2030. Like, we've got to be halfway there by 2030, which means significant changes right now. We can't yep. leave it. Otherwise, just the whole thing's going to go haywire, so... That's a, that's a good answer. And yeah, I, I need some sort of pithy, like, what the Overton window is, for those of you who don't know. Well, I'll give it a quick try now. This will probably not make the final cut, but um, for the Australian context, as I'm no longer in Australia, but speaking to you in Australia, um, a good example of how the Overton window shifts in, shifted in Australia would be there was a time in which, you know, Terranelli has said that Aboriginal people didn't exist. They weren't people. Any stance you had that said they were people were going to be, therefore, naturally at one end of that spectrum. And on the other end was the Terranelius doctrine. And only when that changed did the Overton window shift. And that opinion, that stance was no longer part of the acceptable debate. And then we could actually discuss within this bound. So the Overton window is basically the range of socially acceptable debate on a topic you can only have a debate in good faith within the Overton window. So the shifting of that is when basically facts on the ground and the the culture acknowledges that there are some things that exist outside the bounds of good debate, of good faith debate. Mm. One of which being that, you know, uh, nowadays Barnaby Joyce says something ridiculous about, I'm not sure that climate change is man-made and he is largely laughed out of the room, but he's not fully. So when that, fully happens that means the window shifted and that means yes you are no longer on the one end of that spectrum you are coming back to the middle because the window shifted yeah so it's interesting interesting conversation because i don't think that i have to move i think the overton window's got to move so yeah because if i if i move that means i've betrayed my beliefs you know so I've got to wait for the Overton windows, for the whole community to say this is the way it's going to be. So that conversation is within that Overton window, as you say. Um, Quick question for you. This might be out of completely left field, but is your show, is there a like a compelling reason for your show to only exist as its own show and its own identity rather than the content on your show being available within another show, like a larger show, a a place where there is a pre-existing audience, essentially, like, could your content you're making be reused and reutilized by another channel, potentially? I'd be only too happy to have that happen. I, I hope that's the answer I get from most creators. I, but I, like... I think that we should all be doing whatever we can to to in, to increase the, the width and breadth of this discussion. That means mm-hmm. saying to somebody, you can take my show and you can do what you like with it, just give me a credit for it or something. 
Yep. And go for your life. So if there's any other shows that you know of that want bits and pieces from me, tell them to take it. Um, Excellent. I'll have that as like a badge or something on this going forward that, you know, people read about stuff and be like, oh, okay, no, these these shows are available for syndication very simply. Mm. Yeah. Just take it. Um, I was, yep. was going to say that I've had some trouble with Climate Council, mm-hmm. which does some great work. But I, I used one of their um, episodes as part of one of my episodes, and I got a very swift email from them and said, better cut that out. Which I thought that that's defeating the whole purpose of the organisation. Like I thought their their idea was to get the information out there, so the community could learn stuff and come and on you board. Use with their information. Yeah, and use it. And I thought that's the wrong the wrong idea that they they would say don't do that. I think they should be just producing the stuff, and if it goes wherever it goes, it goes. You know. And the same is true for your content. Yeah, I just put it together. If someone wants it, they're welcome to it. I'll take that back to the Climate Council and ask <laughs> them for write a reply because I've also have instances like that. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. excellent. Yeah, a bunch of, they do some great work, and I, yeah. I like some of the stuff they do. But There does seem to be a sense of a, a hierarchical yeah. notion where the Climate Council are up here and everyone else is down there. Yeah, yeah. And we're the ones who need to tell you what to do. Yeah. Whereas it's my view that everybody... As I've said before on some of my little community things I've sent you, Naomi Klein says to change everything we need everybody. Like, yep. And this is not just a, an act for you or for me or for Fred Bloggs to work out or for the Climate Commission. It's for everybody to figure out. Like we've all got to be in this. And yep. to, change, to change everything we need everybody. To change everything, it just blows people's minds because they can't figure out how we're going to change everything. And I think, well, we can. It only takes a matter, yep. of, a matter of a will. Robert, I've got a few short, sharp questions here to, to round things oh, out. Okay. But I just want to say that, like, I really appreciate getting your unique perspective within this space as someone who's done many years' work in, in print and then had this kind of observer status after that where you kind of – you had to like you know rebuild from the ground up yourself how you communicated, which was you know, like your identity as a newspaper man. Like mm-hmm. it's it's a remarkable Phoenix story of you know rebuilding and rising again, and um, the perspective you bring of instead of being a a personality or a pundit or a pontificator, you approach the space as a, a newspaper journalist. And I've, I really appreciate that about the work you do and how you go about it. And you're there to be a news source. And like you said right at the top, sometimes you put things out that you might not fully all the way agree with yourself, but you think it has news merit and value and people should hear it and make up their own minds. You're not there to convince. You're there to inform. Mm-hmm. And that's a unique combination, I think, in the space, because many people start shows because they have an opinion and they want to convince you <laughs> and convert you to that opinion, which I've been guilty of, well, not guilty of, sometimes it's good, but that's the approach I've taken myself in the past. So it's really refreshing to talk to you and see that another way is possible. Mm. So a few short questions here to take us out. Uh, do you have a favorite climate communicator, Robert? A favorite climate communicator? Gee. Just nice and easy, right? <laughs> yeah, straight off the top, yeah. Um, a favourite cl- climate communicator. 
someone who just does a good job, you know, telling people the facts, but also, you know, like right now, I think it's pretty easy to say that everyone, many people's favorite COVID communicator in Australia is Norman Swan. Yeah. He's doing a great job. Yeah, of it. Yeah. Um, right is there it. someone in that category for climate that jumps out at you? And if there's not, that's interesting. Yeah. Shows we've got a ways to go. Well, you're, you're right about that. I don't think we really have a, any anyone who's a great climate communicator. Those who might have been have been burnt out, or I don't know what the what the right words are, but you know, I'm not sure. No, we don't have a good climate communicator. Um, certainly mm. not in Australia, anyway. We've got a few others around the world who who do a pretty good job, but. As far as podcasting is concerned, I haven't heard of any. Um... Well, this might answer my next question. You know, do you have a favorite climate engaged podcast? Um... Except for climate conversations, <laughs> of course. Uh, no, I don't. Like, I'm so busy, Mark, doing everything I do that I don't really have much time to listen to anything else. Yep. If they're going to be so good, I just have to listen to them, but I don't know where they are. I haven't heard of them yet. So, um, I know there's there's lots of podcasts about, and there's lots of podcasts on Climactic Collective, but. I'm so busy doing what I'm doing that I just don't have much time to listen to them. I'm sorry to say, but that's the way it is. Mm-hmm. You know? Like I spend, my wife worries about me because I spend my life in this little office here. She hardly sees me all day, so that worries me. Yeah, I appreciate you go for your daily walks and post photos to prove it. Yeah, well, I go quite early in the morning normally, so I didn't didn't today though because I I wanted to get out. I had a few things to do and I needed to get them done. I wanted to do my climate links, which I hadn't done from the day before. I did them today, and I'm sort of getting behind. When you start prioritizing your podcast over your daily walk, you know, <laughs> you got to yeah. reconsider. Yeah, that's a worry, isn't it? But anyway, not to worry. <laughs> Thank you so much, Robert, for your time. It was so nice to talk to you about your work with Climate Conversations, your approach to it, your experience in the newspaper industry and how it affects the podcasts you make and how you think about how it's an act of climate engagement. It was really a fresh perspective for me and how to think about a podcast, not as a way to put out opinions or put yourself as the podcast host front and center, but how to be a news source I hope you, the listener to this proto episode of Right Here, Right Now, got some enjoyment out of it as well. I look forward to doing that again with Robert in the future with this uh, better mic and a bit more structure. But I think that kind of got the point across well that podcasters don't all have to come in the same sizes and shapes and boxes and experiences. And there is definitely a place, a valuable place, for the basic fundamental skills of print journalism, the skill of asking a good question still to be filled in climate podcasting. Thank you again so much, Robert, for your time, and thank you for listening to this creator interview on Right Here, Right Now. I hope you have a great climate-engaged day.